there, and welcome to the 312th of COVID Calls, a daily discussion of COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Eleanor Mays, um, my pronouns are she, her, and uh, you may remember me from a previous, uh, co-hosting a previous episode a few uh, weeks ago, um, episode 301. Uh, I currently serve as the production assistant and the transcription director for COVID Calls. As always, host Scott Gabriel Knowles is also here. Hi everyone, I'm Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm the historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. And I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Just a reminder, you can usually catch COVID Calls live on weekdays at 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can keep up with COVID calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. Please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. And we are uh, booking COVID calls conversations at this point out to October. So please do get in touch. As of Today, July 20th, 2021, there are 4,099,231 deaths globally from COVID-19. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. In the United States, the death toll from COVID-19 has reached 609,268. In the state of Minnesota, 7,731 people have died from COVID-19. At this point, this date notes 3 million Minnesotans fully vaccinated. That's 53% of the residents in the state. And just wanted to, again, acknowledge Eleanor Mays and her wonderful hosting last time. And Eleanor, it's good to see you again. Thanks for joining me once again. Glad to be co-hosting, Scott. Um, as a way to bring some humanity to the numbers on COVID calls, We've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy uh, for those impacted by the pandemic. And while June has historically been LGBTQ plus Pride Month in the United States, the lingering effects of the pandemic uh, caused many organizers to postpone events into later into the summer. And so uh, this included the Twin Cities Metro, where I am currently located. And so uh, that uh, Pride celebration was held this past weekend. Um, and in honor of Pride Month, I'd like to read a story of advocacy for the LGBTQ community during the pandemic. The headline is, In COVID Vaccine Data, LGBTQ People Fear Invisibility. This was written by Jillian Kramer and was published in the New York Times on May 7th, 2021. When Josie Nixon visited her health insurer's website seeking a coronavirus vaccine, she felt invisible. On a registration form that collected personal and demographic information, the 29-year-old Denver resident had to select other for her gender. There was no option for a transgender woman. Days before, Ms. Nixon had felt a sense of hope when President Biden announced his nomination of Dr. Rachel Levine, a transgender woman, to one of the nation's top health posts and signed an executive order aimed at ameliorating COVID-19 health inequities in the country's most vulnerable communities. But her experience was a stark reminder that the nation's estimated 11.3 million LGBTQ adults still have a long way to go towards reaching equity in healthcare and treatment in the United States. Advocates and health experts are concerned that millions in this population will be unseen in the vaccine rollout for which data has revealed searing inequities across racial and socioeconomic lines. Communities of color and other marginalized groups have faced some of the most severe coronavirus outcomes, yet have received a smaller share of vaccines. LGBTQ people could face similar problems, but may be overlooked because they aren't counted. Unlike with racial and ethnic data, the collection of sexual orientation and gender identity data is scattershot at best, captured in only a few states and territories. The collection of this data would increase the visibility of vaccine disparities, advocates say, and allow policymakers and healthcare providers to more nimbly and equitably allocate resources and craft messaging campaigns for members of these groups. That's important because they have routinely experienced health disparities and often mistrust the healthcare system, a result in part of the history of 
a history of uh, medical mistreatment. Today, in many, many in this population continue to be turned away by doctors for emergency, pediatric, and other forms of medical care. In some states, such as Arkansas, doctors will be able to legally withhold medical necessary treatment from LGBTQ patients. Experts fear this historical and continued mistreatment could deter even those willing to receive a vaccine from seeking one. Adding sexual orientation and gender identity data to providers' vaccine registration forms then can also serve another purpose, advocates say. It signals an affirming safe space for this population of people, which could help address vaccine hesitancy. A number of national surveys and studies have found that LGBTQ people are more likely to face hurdles to healthcare from a lack of transportation to outright denial of care. A 2020 study shows that transgender people frequently experience overt discrimination by healthcare providers from being denied care to being verbally harassed. And care seekers who were out to their providers were more than five times more likely to experience overt discrimination. Those in intersectional vulnerable groups, such as black or low income LGBTQ people, have, may have even more medical distrust. You have a system where people are trying to access care and not receiving it, or not receiving treatment at the rate in which their white counterparts are receiving it. So naturally, you're not going to trust that system, said Pizzola Ojikutu, an infectious disease physician and professor of social medicine at Harvard University. Brad Sears, founding executive director at the Williams Institute in Los Angeles, echoed this point. Being part of two marginalized groups results in marginalization that's more than the sum of those two parts, he said. It is a compounded vulnerability. It's uncommon for medical institutions to go deeper and seek sexual orientation and gender identity data that allows a person to report whether they are straight, lesbian, gay, bisexual, or something else, and whether they identify as female, male, transgender, non-binary, or gender fluid. And of more than 100 federal surveys in one study, only 11 collected some sexual orientation and gender identity data. While federal, federal regulations mandate that some healthcare providers must carry electronic healthcare soft record software with the capability to capture this data, a loophole in the ruling means that they don't actually have to collect it. They face no consequence if they do not include sexual orientation and gender identity questions on intake forms and in conversations about registration. Um, some disagree with the idea of reporting sexual orientation and gender identity data when seeking a COVID-19 vaccine. Jaden Janik, a 25-year-old transmasculine non-binary doctoral student at Black Studies at the University of Texas in Austin, said that while it is important to have an option to self-report this data, that information shouldn't be given out unless it's necessary. As with any sort of tracking, there's always another side, which is surveillance, they said. Compiling this data could put already oppressed people into an even more precarious situation. Even if some people are hesitant to divulge such data, research, research shows that clinicians overestimate how many patients would refuse to self-report. A 2017 study revealed that about 80% of clinicians believe patients would be hesitant to provide this data, but only 10% of patients reported they would refuse to do so. Having a chance to self-report, advocates say, is the key. It is important for people to be able to identify themselves just like any other demographic, said Chris Grasso, Associate Vice President for Informatics and Data Services at Fenway Institute. We want to normalize the collection of data, just like we ask people about their age, race, or ethnicity. LGBTQ advocates have raised alarm bells throughout the pandemic, writing letters to health organizations and the new administration, asking that agencies report on coronavirus testing, care outcomes, and vaccine uptake in their communities. A few states and jurisdictions have started to make strides. Pennsylvania, Rhode Island, and Washington, D.C. collect and report some of this data in their COVID-19 surveillance systems. But as recently as March, the California Department of Public Health had not made sexual orientation and gender identity statistics public. And other officials, echoing concerns of those who want to keep their sexuality private, have expressed hesitancy over collecting that information. In spite of the paucity of data, the CDC notes that LGBTQ people may be more likely to suffer severe COVID-19 outcomes than heterosexual people, in part because of a higher prevalence of pre-existing conditions. Not knowing how many of these people have received a COVID-19 vaccine is a problem, advocates say. Agencies rely on population data to make a policy decision and direct funding, and advocates say that failing to collect sexual orientation and gender identity data on COVID-19 vaccine uptake 
could obscure the real picture and prevent vaccine distribution decisions and funds from positively impacting the population. When it comes to COVID-19 vaccine distribution, how can you design interventions and know where to target your resources if you don't know where you've been, said Dr. Ojikutu. The reason we need to do data-driven, culturally responsive outreach is that medical mistrust and along with that vaccine hesitancy among LGBTQ people is rooted in the stigma and discrimination that this community has experienced over time, said Alex Karuglian, a, a psychiatrist and director of the National LGBTQIA Health Education Center and the Massachusetts General Hospital Psychiatry Gender Identity Program. Placing affirmatively worded sexual orientation and gender identity questions with inclusive response options on vaccine registration forms could encourage members of these populations to more confidently sign up for COVID-19 vaccines outside of population-focused providers. In a 2017 study, Megan Romanelli, an assistant professor of social work at the University of Washington, found that LGBTQ people were invested in finding affirmative medical attention so that they could be assured safety and non-discriminatory care, she said. Transparency in how the data would be used, experts say, would also be important in helping this population to report data at vaccination sites rather than leaving fields blank. And the time to do it, they say, is now. Again, this was an article in the New York Times uh, published on May 7th, um, titled, In COVID Vaccine Data, LGBTQ People Fear Invisibility. And with that, I'd like to introduce our guests for today. Um, our uh, first guest is Shor Salkis, um, they them. Uh, Shor is one of two LGBTQIA community liaisons to the COVID-19 response at the Minnesota Department of Health, or MPH. Since the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, Shore has been working with their colleagues to get as to get to get as much timely and accurate information into LGBTQIA communities as possible through connecting with community members, organizations, and hosting community gatherings. Um, their other work at MDH is to provide coaching, training, and technical assistance to statewide health improvement or SHIP partners across the state of Minnesota to dig deeper and enact health equity and community engagement uh, as core principles of their work. Shore is deeply committed to health equity and health justice as ways to create more healed and thriving communities. Beyond their work at MDH, Shore has been working to support LGBTQIA communities through many projects and organizations like the Minnesota Transgender Health Coalition, Out in the Backyard, Shift Minnesota, the City of Minneapolis Transgender Equity Council, and through Public Health and Health Equity Coalition building across Minnesota and Wisconsin. Our second guest for today is Maddie Laidlaw, Browns Chile. Uh, in, in Maddie is a LGBTQ community liaison for the COVID-19 response at the Minnesota Department of Health. In this role, she elevates the concerns and needs of LGBTQ community, shares up-to-date information and resources about all things COVID-19 community and advocates for internal change at the Minnesota Department of Health uh, to better serve LGBTQ Minnesotans. Jordan Maddie, welcome to COVID Calls. It's good to have you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, happy to be here. Um, to start off, we usually like to ask people um, where exactly you're calling in from and, and what the pandemic situation is like there locally. So if either of you want to clue us in to our, our national listeners and to what it's like in Minnesota and Twin Cities, please go for it. Yeah, um, so we had a little bit of it uh, brought up by Scott earlier in this call, but just a few other things to highlight. Um, we've been seeing a pretty significant decrease in cases uh, since April when there was a another surge that we saw um, in our state. Um, and things are trending downward, but with an increase in the circulation of variants, particularly the alpha variant, but we've also been seeing the gamma and the delta, which is the most concerning of the three, um, we are seeing cases slowly starting to increase again. Um, but we're getting under 200 a day, newly reported cases. Um, it's just, it's, it's starting to change and go up. Um, because of those variants that are now being um, circulated around. Um, one thing that we've been noticing, though, is that um, almost all of them are for people that are vac unvaccinated. So over 99% of the new cases are from unvaccinated individuals. Um, and yeah, so we have that like 53, 55% overall vaccination, but that includes people who are not eligible yet. So our 
are children that are under the age of 12. Um, but for 18 plus, um, over 70% of Minnesotans um, have gotten at least one of their uh, COVID vaccine doses. And we're at about 67% for 16 plus. Um, so doing pretty well in terms of vaccination um, compared to other states. Um, however, we do still see significant racial and geographic disparities, um, particularly in our rural Minnesotan counties, we're seeing pretty low rates in some areas. Um, in the Twin Cities, where both Shore and I are located, um, so that's Minneapolis and St. Paul, um, it's a very high rate. Um, so in Hennepin County, it's, it's higher than even the overall state rate of 70%. I think that was a great summary. Thanks, Maddie. <laughs> Thanks for giving us that picture, Maddie. Yeah, it's a, it's really helpful summary, and and it, I don't know if you know these statistics, but I am you know curious also what impact neighboring states might have. I mean, Minnesota is a big state, and I wonder um, along those border lines, uh, have you seen data that indicates that it's if you're in states that have a lower vaccination rate that the the rates of infection might be higher along those borders or that doesn't play out in Minnesota? Um, I can look at the county data to see. Um, but what I was going to say is we actually do have a lot of people coming from out of state and getting vaccinated as well. So if someone um, initially when we had um, kind of uh, we didn't have enough vaccine available for everyone. The only people that qualified were people who worked in Minnesota if they were out-of-staters. But now that it's abundant and we are just trying to get as many people vaccinated as possible, um, they're pretty widely open for people outside of the state. We actually had a vaccination event at our Pride event last weekend. And during my shift, which was just four hours on Saturday, one of the people that got vaccinated was a young person from Wisconsin. Um, mm -hmm. And so we were coordinating with them on how to find their um, second dose because it was a Pfizer vaccine. But I can quick pull up the regional data and take a peek at what we got here. If you want to just talk about sure. something else. No, <laughs> no. I I always like people searching for data. Um, I, let me ask a, another question while we're just getting started. And we've been asking guests in North America uh, this question about what this last 17 months has been like. And sure, let me start with you. I, I wonder if you wouldn't mind sharing like a strong memory or association that you have with this time. I know it's kind of impossible mm -hmm. to ask you to choose one, but I'm sort of curious, like what do you associate a, a sort of strong memory with this pandemic? Sure, that's a, a great question. Um, I feel like a lot of my like strongest, most vivid memories are from the very beginning of the pandemic, when there was both like this sense of dread, but also um, a very real slowdown in all of our, in many people's daily lives, um, to staying home, to spending more time in our homes with family, um, and for us, it was also really different because the place that we worked went into pandemic response mode. And so those are some of my earliest memories that stand out a lot, too. So one, for example, is at the beginning of the pandemic, I worked in the Minnesota Department of Health's um, call center. So we had a public hotline and we were all going in um, and trying to answer people's questions when we had at that point, you know, and we're, I'm talking about. March, April, May, June, consistently, daily, sometimes many times a day, changing information. And so it was this, this like complete sense of urgency and also this, these, this feeling of like, I can never keep up and serve people and get people the information um, in a timely manner. And so this, it, it felt like we were always chasing the pandemic, or I felt like I was always chasing the pandemic um, in that role that I played for the first um, five or six months of the pandemic. Um, and another really vivid memory is just being outside. I have a four-year-old. And so all of a sudden we had no childcare and we were working pandemic job. Like I was working at the Department of Health, but also my kid was home with me. And so we were trying to constantly come up with projects and art 
things and went to like every park in like a half an hour, um, a half an hour radius of our house. And so, so many like really sweet memories of just being outside and doing projects with my kid and waiting on what, what is this? Like, what is, what's going to happen next? Thank you for sharing those really vivid memories. I know that resonates with a lot of people who become instant programmers uh, for children uh, <laughs> day right. by day by day. Yeah, absolutely. Day. Yeah. Maddie, same question to you. And I realized I, I sent you on a, on a data finding expedition. I'm sorry about that, but I, <laughs> no, okay. it's okay. Um, I did look it up and actually our, our border counties are doing okay. Um, they're still not as good as like our metro area and um, Cook County, which is um, up in the north corner, but it's actually, those ones are doing all right. It's actually um, central Minnesota that there's several kind of a swath of counties that are in the 40 percentile for their vaccination of 16 plus. So um, didn't look like, it doesn't look like our count, our, our border towns are having as uh, difficult, as much difficulty as some of the other counties. Um, in terms of memories, uh, you know, it's been such a blur that I like, I'm glad Shore went first because <laughs> it helped me remember some things. Um, so the first being that I have a school age child and um, having to be in the pandemic response while um, being a teacher um, was really, really challenging. Um, I had her desk set up next to my desk and she was kitty corner to me. And um, I basically had to jump in and help her. She's not really a kid that at the time really was good at the doing it by herself. She needed lots of hands-on attention when it came to school care and, um, and teaching. And so it was a lot of feeling like I was doing 240 an hour jobs. Um, I did get approved eventually because I'm very fortunate to have the privilege of this um, to have uh, some leave so I could um, reduce my hours each day to, I think, five a day. So five I was working and then and then the remaining four, uh, three to four, I could help her with her schoolwork. But it was it was really challenging. And I was also on the hotline at the beginning. Um, and there's lots of really emotional calls, both people sharing really horrible things that have been happening to them, sometimes being the punching bag for the public <laughs> because they were given this phone number and they couldn't get a hold of anyone else. And so they needed to vent their frustration. Um, and then just a lot of people who were really appreciative of the information we were able to get to them because we were updated so regularly. But it was incredibly emotionally draining to do those things during the day. And then being in the state that we're in also kind of endure some really deep trauma in our community um, around some police brutality um, with the murder of George Floyd. And so all of those things combined I think really were this perfect storm of just complete overwhelm. Um, when I look at where I'm at now in the pandemic, the biggest, strongest memory that I have is the first time I had some of my friends over. Um, we had all been vaccinated fully um, and I had bought a house during the pandemic. And so no one had been to my home and so having them over for just two people the first time over for one evening was like this really big deal. <laughs> um, it was it was really important to me. Um, and it just like filled my house with like love and and laughter for the first time um, in a long time. And so those are kind of the two things that jump out to me. Thank you for sharing those, Maddie. The party of the century with two people come over. That's a true COVID era kind of memory right there. Yeah, I feel like uh, we all have those, you know, extremes of memories for, for the pandemic, whether they're, you know, relief at seeing loved ones and friends again, or, you know, earlier in the pandemic and having total sense of overwhelm and confusion. But um, just want to touch again on the uh, Pride Festival that was this weekend in in the Twin Cities, um, 
which for me was another great uh, kind of new memory of, of coming out of the pandemic and, and seeing people, you know, really celebrate being themselves and get to see their peers. And, and that was a really great experience. Um, so uh, you both helped to organize vaccine sites at the Twin Cities Pride this past weekend. How was that experience um, kind of organizing for the community and in, in this kind of new post, post, you know, main part of the pandemic time? And were there, you know, were, were there many vaccines given to participants and kind of what was, tell me a little bit about the demographic of um, the people who, you know, were at Pride, but also getting vaccinated, if, if you noticed any trends there or just your observations. Full disclosure, I volunteered at the vaccination booth. It was a lot of fun, um, but I want to hear from Shore and Maddie about, about organizing it and, and their observations. Sure. I mean, it was a bit of a wild party, it felt like, right? Because there was thousands of people in the park. And that scale of being like that being in space with that scale of people is like, feels like a wild new game um, to me. But it was also um, felt like some really nice energy to be in community with folks and to have LGBTQ folks um, actively interfacing with us, like, um, which they have been throughout the course of the pandemic. So um, as Eleanor mentioned in our bios, we're the two LGBTQ liaisons at the health department. And so we've been hosting um, different community meetings and events throughout the course of the pandemic. Um, and, but they've all been virtual. And so this is really the first time that we've interfaced with people in person in 18 months as a part of our job in the pandemic response, which was like a pretty amazing delight for me. Um, I'm an extrovert, so I had a really good time chit chatting, um, with folks and talking about COVID and vaccines and being queer and all the things, you know, um, so it was a really, really nice event. Um, I don't know if we have a final number on how many people were vaccinated over the course of the festival, but I think it was like 50 something, right, Maddie? The one number that we have for sure is at least 52, but um, we did a collaboration with the Minneapolis Health Department, which is a city level health department. Um, and they said, that was when they gave us their first numbers. And then um, our contact there was like, oh, I found more. I'll tell you. <laughs> so at least 52, but more than 52, um, which at this point in the vaccine access in our state is really phenomenal. Um, like lots of community events are getting in the teens at most sometimes. And so the fact that we were able to reach that many people was really, really wonderful. Um, and kind of like what Shore alluded to is a bit of a wild ride getting here because our um, our state did not open up for larger outdoor events until um, May. And so the like end of May. Um, and so the um, organizers of our Twin Cities Pride Festival um, had to put together a festival that they normally have a year to put together in six weeks. And so um, doing that level of movement that quickly and then us finding Shore and I getting looped in and finding out that they wanted to offer the vaccines and then having another person at MDH say, we're going to go big and we're going to do all three vaccines at this site. Um, really, there was a lot of moving pieces and it was a wonderful collaboration between Shore and I, our um, contacts at the Minneapolis Health Department, um, our contacts at Blue Cross Blue Shield, which is an insurance company in Minnesota, um, and then our um, contacts at Hennepin Healthcare, which is a health system in the metro area. Um, and so um, really great collaboration there. And then, of course, people like Eleanor that we pulled in to be our, our volunteers at the actual booths. Um, it was really, really cool. And of course, the people that are running the festival. So they were also really important partners in this work. 
Um, but we had lots of fun things that we got to do because of where we're at in the pandemic. Some of our partners had extra budget. And so um, because apparently they just found money, which is never a bad thing. And so um, we were able to order some fun things like some really cute uh, unicorn stuffed animals that had hoodies that said, I did it for the herd. Um, hashtag I got vaccinated. And then um, we also ordered some like bandages that were in the different identity pride flags. And so those were very cute and popular. Um, yeah, those unicorn, and unicorns were a big hit, especially once. They were a huge <laughs> hit. Yeah, we ran out. It was great. My um, kid has like five. <laughs> the perks of helping organize these events. <laughs> yeah. I have lots of band-aids now. Um, but yeah, it just, it was a really, like a lot of people who are really excited about this project. Um, and making sure that these were accessible. And we looped in a lot of community organizations that serve the LGBTQ community to get their feedback on how to do this right. So one of the things that they really wanted us to think about is making sure that we weren't widely broadcasting this so that we weren't having a lot of people who were not in the LGBTQ community who were unvaccinated coming in in droves and exposing our community that's already at greater risk for a lot of negative outcomes of COVID but really being targeted and saying like, hey, if you're already going to be here, get your vaccine while you're here. Or if you're due for your second dose and you're already going to Pride, get your second dose while you're here. Um, and so really thinking through how to be strategic while protecting our community. But one of the amazing things I would say about this event was how many people were like, oh, I got it as soon as I could. Or I've been fully vaccinated for months. And so it was really heartwarming to see for the LGBTQ community, we are really look out for each other. It's really important that we take care of each other and do community care. Um, and that was very, very clear in the number of people who were like, oh, I'm, I'm vaccinated. I wanted to make sure I was vaccinated before I congregated with our people, so. I want to just follow up on that, um, Maddie, what, what you were saying, and either to Shore or Maddie, either one of you may have a theory about this, uh, or maybe you were collecting this data there. I don't, I don't know if you can do that, but how do you account for, for people coming to an event not having been vaccinated and then deciding at that point? Or, I mean, I'm sort of curious about the dynamics of this because the vaccine's been available for a while. And so I'm really curious about that. Is this an issue? It's sort of a, you know, trusted peer brings you and you're with other trusted peers and you see there's that dynamic or I'm just curious, like why, if somebody's waited this long not to be vaccinated, why they would have decided to mm. do it at the festival? Yeah, I think that there's a, I mean, I think that there are so many reasons why people aren't vaccinated still. Um, I think some of them are certainly inaccessibility to a vaccine. So whether that's a scheduling, I work a lot of hours, I have children in except like I just can't, I don't have that type of time access. Um, and I think that we, we heard some really powerful stories at Pride about other things that were going on. We had a number of young people approach our vaccine booths and, you know, there's this energy about pride, right? Especially if it's your first time and you're like, oh, I'm here, like, this feels so cool. There's other people like me. I can be visible here. Um, maybe this is my first time going without my parents. So there's like this palpable energy of, you know, the euphoria of being able to be who you are in a space that feels really good. And so we had a number of young people approach the booth and say things to us like, you know, I, I wanted to get the vaccine, but my parents aren't supportive. Or I think some folks from like rural areas um, who came specifically for Pride 
for that palpable energy, for that feeling of community, who then got vaccinated um, because they felt like this is a space that I could do it. And so I think that that is a really unique piece of doing something like this at Pride. Um, I remember Saturday morning being a little bit slow, and then we had a young person who shared this, a really similar story to what I just um, talked through with with us and ended up getting vaccinated. And I was like, if we just do this one all weekend, that's great. You know, mm-hmm. like if we made this accessible to one young person yeah. who didn't have family support and could show up here and be who they are and make this autonomous decision for their body and their life, that's beautiful. Um, and so there was a lot of feeling like that, um, I think, in the park over the course of the two days. And we heard a number of stories just like that. Definitely peer support, too, like especially mm-hmm. with a lot of the young folks, because we expanded to under um 18 a lot later. So the 12 to 17 year olds have only been available for it um, for like two months, I think. Um, And so um, in in the United States. And so um, there were a lot of folks that they were there with their friends who are also under 18. And one of them in the group had gotten theirs already and was coaching the other people either one or multiple other young people and saying, you know, it doesn't hurt. I got a little sick, but it's not that bad, blah, blah, blah. And so like they were the ones that was real, were really helping to drive that. And so some of them, it was with their parents, others, they would call their parent over the phone and say like, Hey, can I get my vaccine today? And I like got on the phone and I was like, we have real nurses. Do you want to talk to one? (laughs) We're not just like some people at a park with needles. Like we like, we really, we're legit. We're with the health department. Well, I mean, I'm a parent. People in a park (laughs) with needles. So, um, (laughs) so either way, like I know there was one person in particular who was very young and very scared and, um, their friend held their hand and like was like what's your favorite color and like asking all these really cute questions to keep their mind off of it while they got the vaccine and it was great so those sorts of things like shore said those little moments were well worth all of the work to get there it also helped that you could choose amongst many different uh lgbtq flag band-aids for after you got your vaccinations yeah, I, I remember um, one one parent came in with some teenage kids and they were getting their vaccines and there was a really just heartwarming moment um, where uh, the the parent was going through the form and helping the kid, uh, you know, check off what uh, they felt were their uh, gender identities and, and other questions relating to um, sexual orientation and gender identity. And uh, the, the, the parent really just like very patiently like helped that kid, um, you know, take their time, figure out what they felt identified, they identified with the best. And it was, it was really heartwarming, um, which, you know, it was good to see, you know, in that article I read at the beginning, there's, you know, discussion of how, you know, affirming experiences and affirming language um, can really help the LGBTQ community to uh, kind of embrace embrace the public health, the importance of the public health movement of getting vaccinated. And so it was really great to see that, um, you know, even on the paperwork that, that had been arranged for this event, that um, the questions that were being asked and the options that were uh, available to, to select were, were those that were really um, broad and accepting for, for the community. So that was really great to see. Um, yeah, well, and yeah. those, the answer categories, even at Pride, um, were not as expansive as even we would have liked. Yeah. And so I'm glad you brought that up because this has been a journey for us throughout the course of the pandemic, working with the state health department to to do exactly what that article was talking about. And that is collect data on LGBTQ people related to their experiences with the pandemic. And we've 
both Maddie and I internally have done a ton of advocacy on this issue. And then community has all community members and organizations have also done a ton of advocacy on the issue because as the article said, if we don't know, we don't know. And also if we don't ask, then people don't see themselves in the systems that serve them. And that's a huge problem. And so it's getting that on the forms for pride was probably the easiest advocacy we've had to do. So yay for that. Um, but we also managed to get some questions within our systems on first the case investigation protocols, then testing protocols. Um, and so it's just been, we've had quite a wild ride related to that specific article's content, in fact, um, and are continuing to ride on that wild ride. Yeah, I know we've discussed previously that it was a bit of a uphill battle at times, not just, you know, not a neutral establishing something new on a neutral level playing field, but really you you two met with some resistance with, with getting that kind of uh, questions asked and gathering that type of data. Can either of you elaborate more on that, Maddie or before? Maddie, do you have anything to add about um, adding those types of questions to to public health pursuit in Minnesota? Um, I mean, I think it's twofold. Um, on the one hand, I think a big part of it is getting the questions on there, that itself being really challenging. Um, but I would say in addition to that, the other piece of it is making sure that when people are the ones actually asking the questions, that they're doing it in the right way to make people feel safe and welcome in answering them. Um, and so we've we worked really hard to get some questions they weren't as good as we would have liked um, they didn't capture the information in the way that we know is best practice um but we, we needed something you know we needed to have some data um but then when we were getting <clears throat> kind of report back on what what people were seeing for these various indicators the data wasn't good like it, it's really not it doesn't capture what we know exists because of how it was being asked. So we had to do a lot of capacity building around how do you actually ask these questions in a way that's inviting to people um, with the way that our culture is around um, LGBTQ identities. There's still a lot of transphobia, homophobia, biphobia. And so um, what do you do if the person that you're interacting with does have some pushback on those questions? And it really comes down to the perspective of how do we normalize this? You know, how do we make it so that these questions are just a part of your regular demographic collection for anything so that just like race and ethnicity data, it's no longer controversial. It's no longer pushing someone's comfort zone because it's all, oh, this is just a form. This is just what they're asking. There's no assumptions being made. There's no, um, it's not being invasive. It's really like with the purpose of really trying to understand how is COVID-19 impacting our LGBTQ Minnesotans. Um, and, um, and that's been a real, real challenge. And it was really like Shore said, it like, it wasn't even ripping off a bandaid getting these questions with the city of Minneapolis. It was just like, here's what we would suggest. And they were like, okay. And they just like put it on the form. And it was like, why is this so easy? And <laughs> we did a little bit of training for the, for the healthcare providers to make sure that they, um, for both Hennepin Healthcare, as well as Blue Cross Blue Shield to make sure that they felt comfortable with like negotiating these questions. Um, but the nice thing about with registration forms, um, generally speaking, people are filling them out for themselves. And so if they don't want to answer the question, they don't have to. Um, they can always ask us if there's a, an identity or a label that they're not familiar with. But like, and, and we were at an event that serves LGBTQ folks. So we really didn't have to worry about pushback from the people that were filling out these forms. Um, but we still took it as an opportunity to improve uh, cultural competence for providers in doing any work um, and care for the LGBTQ community in Minnesota. Um, and so, yeah, it's it's been a real challenge to 
to get the questions. Um, we, with the data, we're like, well, this is why we wanted these other questions because you're not capturing things like what you had said, Eleanor, in the um, article about how, you know, if you have male, female, what is a transgender female person supposed to check? Like, and, and if they check female, which is accurate, then their transgender identity is not being acknowledged. And so then people say, well, we don't have a trans community and it's because you're not asking the question correctly. Um, and so those were some of the things that with kind of the reporting that we've gotten, we've been like, yep, that sounds about right. We're missing a lot of people here. And so you're not seeing the numbers that we know exist. And um, it's just kind of a continual process. And I would like to think that, and I know, I'm a very optimistic person with some of this, but um, by showing data uh, from the uh, Pride event and how like how it was received to ask those questions, that that could potentially be a way of providing some advocacy of like, look, this is possible and it can be done better. And um, and it does a lot to build trust. It just sounds so frustrating as community liaisons to be able to you know witness but what's really happening in our own community and then being told that the data doesn't reflect that and it's because it's not capturing what's actually out there. So I can't imagine, you know, through the year and a half of the pandemic that we've all just come out of how, how you must have, you know, had that come up over and over again. Sure. Did you have anything to add to, to that discussion or? Yeah. Well, and I just to add some context to the point you just made, Eleanor, that, so we didn't start collecting data on anything related to the COVID response until this, I think it was like late December of this, of 2020. And so we missed eight months, eight or nine months of potential data collection. And so our numbers are pretty wonky in Minnesota. It's As Maddie said, it's really hard to tell what's really going on because it's our communities are really undercounted. And in a state like California, for example, that has standard statewide standardized data collection measures for SOGI data questions, SOGI data is sexual orientation and gender identity. It's a shorthand that lots of people use, um, particularly in public health and other research disciplines. Um, they're, they're collecting it in a much more standardized way. And so they have data from across the pandemic from from across the whole pandemic that they can look to um, and have a really different story to tell. And that's what the data does is it tells stories and it tells stories about our communities. Um, and those stories are important for us to be seen, heard, acknowledged. But those stories are also really important because that's how dollars are allocated. When we're talking about government and services that people get and nonprofits and how they create their programming, it is through these data. Um, and so when we say that, like, this is a problem that LGBTQ people are undercounted, like, we're talking about the fact that we're undercounted in the census, too. Um, and so huge data um, collection efforts like that, not collecting good LGBTQ SOGI data questions means that not only are we invisible, but we aren't getting, like our communities are not getting the services and dollar allocations that we need and deserve. And then if you look at like the state of California, um, they have a whole research center, the Williams Institute at UCLA, that has done regular reporting on the impact of COVID-19 on um, LGBTQ Californians. And they have that because they have the data. And it's showing all the things that we're hearing, all of the disparities that we know exist, but we can't really concretely prove um, for data folks because we don't have it in our state. So we have to kind of by proxy say, see, this is what's happening in these other states. <laughs> and so this is something that we think is also happening here. I just want to remind listeners that you're listening to COVID Calls, and we're talking today about LGBTQ health and COVID-19 with guests, uh, Maddie Laidlaw and Shore, and I'm sorry, I have just blank on Shore Salkas. I'm so sorry about that, Shore. Um, so, um, and I just want to follow up on on this if I if I can, because this data reporting issue, which you've been discussing in detail, so crucial. 
but there's sort of a layer underneath that that I think um, I'd like to know more about, which is just the particular kind of health vulnerabilities for the LGBTQ community that you worry about, because you, if, if they don't show up, I mean, if the data doesn't, uh, LGBTQ members of the community don't show up, well, that's a problem to begin with. But then there's that underlying concern that you most must have. And I wonder if you could articulate that a little bit. Sure. Let me start with you on that. And I'm sorry about blanking on your last name. No worries. I didn't put it in my box, um, the name box thing. Um, specific to COVID is your question, like the underlying concerns. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we know a lot of disparities that do exist in our communities. Um, so, as we've both mentioned, I think a couple of times, our communities experience a great deal of discrimination in healthcare, in employment, in housing, um, really in foundational parts of our lives that create well-being and stability so that people can thrive. And so what that what that has manifested as in our communities is a series of different types of coping mechanisms um, and behavioral patterns for some folks um, and across our communities that um, have led to a lot of disparities. So, for example, um, the rates of tobacco use in our communities are incredibly high. Um, there's a lot of reasons that tobacco use is higher in LGBTQ communities um, than in non-LGBTQ communities. Discrimination and stigma is one of them. Um, there's a lot of bar culture in our communities. Um, people tend to gather in bars because those were the only places for a long time that folks could find each other. Um, and so alcohol and tobacco use um, we have pretty high rates of, which leads to then disparities around a lot of different types of cancer um, and other like lung-related and pulmonary diseases. Um, and so when I think about COVID, that was actually one of the first things that I thought about. I was like, wow, like we already know that we have, are at a disproportionate rate of a lot of types of cancers, lung cancer, emphysema, um, other tobacco-related issues like heart disease. Um, and we know that COVID is really, at least at the beginning of the pandemic, what we knew was COVID is really impacting people's ability to breathe. And we have these profound disparities that impact people's ability to breathe. And so this was like one of my immediate concerns at the beginning of the pandemic was like, how do we start communicating that to people? And what is that going to mean for our communities? Like, are we going to be dying at higher rates? Are we going to be having more adverse and severe symptoms to COVID? And we still don't really know the answer to those questions. Um to this day because of the data doesn't tell us much about it. But those were some of the initial things that I was thinking about um, in terms of how are the disparities that we know exist going to map on this new disease that we're just learning about? Um, and are our people going to die at higher rates because of it? The other one that came to mind for me right away is, you know, like fighting off any infection is more challenging when you're immunocompromised. And we have a really significant community of people living with HIV and AIDS. And some of them are totally fine because they're in treatment, they're on their medications and their viral load is completely suppressed. But for people who are not taking their medication regularly for any number of reasons or they're undiagnosed, being... Um, having HIV infection and then getting exposed to COVID-19, that was where my fear was immediately, was we already experienced a pandemic in the gay community, in the transgender community um, in the 80s with the, with the widespread impact of AIDS and the loss of a lot of our elders. And so for me, there was a huge fear in the beginning around are we gonna lose more of this giant wave of uh, our elders or of our people living with HIV that are younger as well. And um, from what I've seen, um, our AIDS service organizations in Minnesota were amazing and they really were huge partners in getting people vaccinated right away. Um, and so from what I've understood from the people that I am still connected to that 
work in that field, um, we haven't been seeing that. But that was an immediate concern for me was, you know, we do have higher rates of people living with disability who are either immunocompromised or, or have others as well um, that put them at greater risk. And I think one other thing that I'll add in, in this part of the conversation is that um, we, we know that in our communities that there are higher rates of anxiety, depression, and suicidality as well. And when the pandemic, when everything shut down in the pandemic, another really, um, really scary part of that was what happens to folks who are living with either with family or other caregivers or in situations where they can't be out. Um, what will that social isolation, social isolation do, do to those folks, to their mental, for their mental health? Um, how do we really support each other in a community that really thrives on social connectivity and chosen family to stay mentally and emotionally well um, when you can't see anybody in a safe way? Um, and we couldn't for months and months and months. So that was another really big part of some of the programming that we did. Most All the programming that we did was about covid and we always had a component of social connection um, or community connection in, as a part of our programming as well, because we knew that even those like 10 or 15 minutes of just like saying hi and checking in could be all that somebody got during their day. And we really intentionally for a few of them had the focus on wellness, taking care of yourself how to show up for each other while being isolated. And in Polden, a lot of healers and healthcare providers and mental health support people um, to provide that to folks um, and get them connected to resources and to each other. So it seems like, you know, for the LGBTQ community, it was really quite multifaceted, the, the fronts on which COVID was affecting daily life and, and impinging on health and wellness. And I just was wondering at this point under pandemic, what do you feel is needed to address the concerns that like the ones we've just talked about that the LGBTQ community faced um, with, with COVID in regard to COVID-19? So what, what do you feel right now is the most pressing? Is it, is it vaccination? Is there something else that, that hasn't been discussed so much in the media that is particularly uh, pressing for the LGBTQ community to deal with, with COVID-19. Uh, let's, let's start with you, Maddie, if you have want to chime in on that. I think the first thing that comes to mind for me is that the um, moratorium on uh, rent evictions is no longer um, there. So um, there's the potential that we're going to have more people becoming unhoused because they're no longer being protected against um, uh, rental evictions. Um, the other thing that I think about right away is that we had so many people lose their jobs and, and there were um, there's national data that shows that LGBTQ folks were had a higher rate of losing, uh, experiencing job loss in their household than non-LGBTQ folks. Um, and for a time, people were on unemployment and we had that support and um, that went away. Like it, the money ran out, you know? And so now we have these people who don't, they, they weren't hired back on their job or their job was so exploitative that they didn't want to go back to that position. And then they're without income. And so I think right now what we're looking at is what are these ripple effects from that very acute phase of the of the pandemic. And we're gonna be feeling those for a really long time. But the, the two that I know are really pressing are housing and um, income and being able to support yourself and meet those basic needs through having enough money to get food on the table, having enough money to pay the bills um, and, and to, you know, replace your clothes if they have holes, you know, things like little things that just add up. And um, those are kind of the things that I'm thinking about right now. Sure. Do you have anything to, to add? To that? No, I think that that's spot on in terms of things that we haven't really mentioned that are really impacting our communities. Yeah. I, 
I just want to throw back to the previous LGBTQ episode that we had on COVID calls, where the article that we highlighted at the beginning discussed how um, pre-COVID LGBTQ youth uh, faced higher rates of, of homelessness, and so the pandemic only made that worse. And so we're seeing um, those, like you said, Maddie, those ramifications continue to echo onwards, um, even as things start to open up. Um, I might just just follow up um, again with each of you, and sure, I'm going to start with you on this. Just about, you know, both of you dedicated to public health work and to the health of LGBTQ community within that work. But I, I wonder how this pandemic period has changed the way you think about your work. The work that you did before the pandemic, do you see that somehow differently now? Or new skills? that you had to develop during this time around communication or data um, apprehension or whatever it may be. I mean, we've talked about so many different aspects of your, of your job, but I just feel like public health coming out of this pandemic in the United States is going to be changing in lots of ways that um, may be a little bit hard to see right now, but people on the front lines are probably seeing it pretty clearly. Sure. I don't know. What do you, what do you think about that? Yeah. Are we really going to see some, some change, a big picture for you particularly? I think that's a great question. So my outside of the pandemic, my job is um, really around doing health equity work within, at this point in my career within government and public health systems. And I think one of our biggest learnings from the pandemic has been that we have a lot of work to do on transforming public health and government systems to be equitable and to be really cons considering what is happening across systemically oppressed communities, right? So not just LGBTQ communities, but Maddie and I have been on calls twice a week, every week, for the course of the pandemic with all of the community liaisons who represent, you know, Black and African-American communities, Latinx communities, Asian Pacific Islander communities, um, immigrant and refugee communities, disabilities communities, um, faith-based communities. And so we've been hearing from all of those communities what, what this has been like every week for the last year and a half. And our system's ability to actually respond to the inequities that the most, some of the most vulnerable populations across the United States are facing um, is really exposed and it's not good enough. And so I think part of what's going to unfold for, I think, many years to come is the reckoning of how do we create a more equitable and just public health system? What does that actually look like? What does it mean to respond to inequities in communities? Um, and how does government actually do that well? And so it's really laid to bear things that a lot of us who have been working internally already knew, but it really exposed it over the last year and a half. Okay. Not to say that there haven't been some good things. There have been, but, you know, a system is a big, a system is huge and a system, government systems are big and unruly and, um, there's a lot that goes into a pandemic response and it really showcased some of those inequities. Yeah, I would say too that it really showed how important, not to like toot our own horns, but like it showed really how important it is to have community folks doing the, yeah. the implementation and to be that direct conduit of information to and from um, before the pandemic, we really didn't have individual people who represented individual communities doing in the targeted outreach. It was, there were these programs and there might be one person that, you know, like sure. Oh, well, sure is a queer and trans person. We're going to go to them for all the stuff related to working to the LGBTQ community. We did not have people that were focused on the LGBTQ community prior to the pandemic. And so our new structure of having these community liaisons, it really, I think, showcased how important having those long-standing relationship-building people there institutionalized in our agency, um, which is something that with post-pandemic is something we're advocating to 
integrate into our structure. Thank you for that really great insight, Maddie. I just want to, just a reminder, you've been listening to COVID calls and you can catch COVID calls every weekday at 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Um, today we were speaking with Maddie Laidlaw and Shore Salkis, uh, two, two fantastic advocates and liaisons at the Minnesota Department of Health and just discussing um, uh, the impact of COVID-19 on LGBTQ, LGBTQ populations and, and uh, on the whole. So with that, I want to thank you both for a fantastic discussion and for sparing some of your very busy time to be on the call today. I really appreciate it. It's been fantastic talking to you both. So happy to be here and to be looped in on this work. So thank you. Thank you. Stay healthy, everyone. We'll see you next time on COVID Calls. Mm -hmm.